this is what Theo was working on, so um, he wanted to make sure he gave it to me before I headed up. I, I'm not sure. I think it's the Ark and some animals. I'm not sure. It's, it's up for interpretation, but that'll go on the fridge later. The job of being a dad never stops, and um, there's so many things that I've learned through being a dad that relate to God, because God's job of being a father never stops either. You ever think about that? There's never a day that he takes, takes a shift off. He never get, calls the babysitter to take over for him either. He's always on duty, and uh, what a father to have. He's, he's always there for us, and uh, I'm so thankful for him. I hope you are as well this morning, because we need a dad like that. This morning we are wrapping up uh, on the Christmas season, and uh, has anyone here taken note of what is significant about today? It has a name, in fact. Anyone? Epiphany. That's right. Today is Epiphany Sunday, in fact, and Epiphany is the day that we, of course, remember the Magi, the wise men coming to visit Jesus and present their gifts and to worship him. And so that's what we are going to be studying this morning. So I would invite you to bow with me and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are always there. You always care. And this morning is no exception. Thank you that as we lift our minds and our thoughts and our hearts up to you, you are delighted in that and that you want to be found by us. In fact, this morning, I'm confident that you want to even increase our understanding of you a little bit further and to reveal yourself in a little bit uh, greater way. And so I humbly pray that your word and and through me, your servant, that that will be accomplished this morning, Lord, as we look at this familiar story of the wise men coming to visit the newborn king. I pray, Lord, that you would open up new understanding uh, of not only the story, but of how it applies to us and that we would leave here uh, with a fuller and richer understanding of what you've done for us through Jesus, your Son. And I pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. I'll begin this morning with an old tale concerning a man that you may have heard of or not named Elroy T. Higginbottom. Now, Elroy T. Higginbottom is uh, a complete nobody, Unless you've heard of him, of course, but I suspect most of you haven't, because Alroy T. Higginbottom comes from Indianapolis. And yet, Alroy has this uncanny ability to gain access to literally anybody he desires, no matter how important or famous, or at least so he claimed. So one day, a wealthy friend who'd known Alroy from their youth and knew that he was literally just a nobody, he decided to call Alroy's bluff. So he came to visit him, and he said to him, I'll bet... If right now I phone the mayor's office and request an appointment for you, he's just going to laugh in your face. Go ahead, said Elroy confidently. So the friend got on the phone, called up the mayor's office. The secretary answered. Can you hold for a moment? After a pause, she came back on the line and said, The mayor wonders if Elroy could join him in 30 minutes for lunch. Well... That was impressive, but thinking it was probably a fluke, the friend then took Elroy with him on a trip to visit Washington, D.C., where it just so happened upon their arrival that the president himself was coming down Pennsylvania Avenue in his limousine. As the two stood on the sidewalk, suddenly the motorcade came to a screeching halt. The limousine window rolled down, and the president himself leaned out and called, Hi, Elroy. How are things in Indianapolis? Well, now completely stunned, 
the friend then took Elroy with him on a trip to the Vatican. As they stood at the Vatican waiting for the Pope himself to appear on the balcony, the friend discovered that suddenly Elroy had disappeared. The next thing he knew, not one, but two men had stepped out on the Pope's balcony. Just then, two tourists right in front of the friend started talking to each other. The first asked, Who's that old man with the white robe and the cross around his neck up on that balcony? To which the second replied, I have no idea, but I'm sure that guy next to him is Elroy T. Higginbottom from Indianapolis. (laughs) Sounds like a tall tale, right? Doesn't sound overly likely that this could happen. But this morning, I have a tale to tell you that sounds even taller still. But incredibly, this tale, this story of mysterious magi, an unknown star, ancient prophecies, prescient dreams, celestial messengers, and a maniacal king, all coming together in search of a baby messiah. Well, this story is incredibly true. It all culminates today, January the 6th. Did you know that January the 6th is the 12th day of Christmas? You know that song, on the 12th day of Christmas? Well, today is, in fact, the 12th day of Christmas. Twelve days following Christmas Day is commemorated as Epiphany. Now, the meaning of the word Epiphany is to show forth, to reveal, to make known. So, Epiphany is to reveal, to make known, to show forth. So what is the epiphany that is revealed to us from these magi, these wise men following the star to find Jesus? Well, let's turn to our text in Matthew chapter 2 to find out. So would you turn there with me this morning? We'll begin once more to refresh our memories on the passage that Henry read for us earlier. We'll start with verses 1 and 2, Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We have seen his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, there are many, many man-made traditions surrounding the Magi, the wise men. So, first, a couple of quick questions to sort of flesh out the story to peel away some of the layers that tradition have imposed on this story so that we can get at the root of what this story really means for us. So, a first, uh, the most obvious question of them all. How many wise men were there? How many? Shout it out. Three. We sang the song, right? We three kings. So, of course, there were three wise men. It's right there in the Bible. It says it in the text, right? Show it to me. Three wise men. Which verse? Anyone? No, it's not there. Funny. We actually don't know how many wise men there were because Matthew doesn't tell us. All the text indicates is that the plural tense is used, meaning there was more than one. There was a group of them. Now, the reason church tradition came up with the number three is simply because there were three different types of gifts presented. So they just, of course, three gifts, three wise men. They each brought a gift, right? Well, in all likelihood, there were far more than three wise men. J. Vernon McGee, after extensive study on this, wrote this in one of his commentaries. He wrote, When this company of wise men, 
there were probably nearer 300 than three, converged on Jerusalem. The entire city, including Herod the king, was stirred. Their coming adds a thrilling dimension to the Christmas story. Now, I realize right out of the gate here that this is bursting a lot of balloons here. Trying to picture a company of potentially 300 or more men, it bursts our quaint notions of just three wise guys, stargazers, just deciding to take an epic journey alone, laden with gold, no less. But think about this as an added detail. Because of their immense influence and wealth, it's known by historians that the Magi wouldn't travel anywhere alone. That would be extremely risky, especially to make a long trek across foreign territory. Unguarded, carrying immense wealth with them, three guys, is impossible. No one would have done it. And in fact, if they tried to do it alone, they would have been robbed along the way. But it's known that these magi, remember, they're wealthy. They brought gold. They brought expensive gifts. These men would have traveled with a company of armed guards. And Matthew chapter 2, verse 3, gives us some inkling of this. Read this verse with, uh, again, along with me. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. The Magi arriving caused a stir in the entire city. So just try to picture, why would the entire city be disturbed, including the king himself, if this was merely three stargazers just asking around town about a newborn king? If this was only three guys, it seems highly unlikely this would have caused such a commotion. Instead, it's far more likely that the arrival of the Magi, accompanied by a relatively large entourage of armed guards, was an impressive sight and would have caused a buzz around the city. Throw on top of that that the buzz is these guys are looking for a new king. Well, now you can see the political intrigue beginning to swirl. So, now that we've kind of blown the lid off of the three wise men idea, we're picturing a little bit bigger group here. The next question, what were the Magi riding? What were they riding? Check, check out the cutout behind me, right? Of course they were riding camels. Everyone knows they were riding camels because Matthew again tells us in verse, which verse? He doesn't. Oh, man, this is, really, this is really getting troublesome. Matthew, again, doesn't tell us what they were riding. He doesn't tell us that. But as one historian put it, did the Magi ride camels? Probably not. The Arabians certainly domesticated camels and over the centuries used them as pack animals on their trade routes across the Arabian Peninsula. But by the time of Jesus' birth, the Nabataeans were most famous for breeding their Arabian horses. Now, as the just-retired pastor of the Ninga Presbyterian Church, Ed Hildebrand, told me after his 50-plus years of research and, and scholarly uh, acumen, to say the least, he had studied this quite extensively, and he told me this. For the Magi, a camel was considered a pack animal, and so riding a pack animal was considered undignified. They were more known for riding about in chariots pulled by magnificent Arabian horses. So he conceded that while there were probably camels in their caravan carrying their gifts and all those sorts of things, the Magi themselves were more likely riding chariots pulled by Arabian horses. So again, I know, 
all our notions of this Christmas story are kind of being blown out of the, the water here. But the reality of this all is, while this is speculation, Matthew simply does not tell us that there were three of them or that they were riding camels. So call me a heretic all you want. I'm just pointing out what the scripture says and what it doesn't say. So now that we've kind of got some of the smoke out of the story that wasn't actually recorded by Matthew, we have to ask this important question. Who exactly were the Magi? Well, the word Magi that Matthew uses is a very interesting word. The word literally means wise man. So that's where we get the term the wise man from. Magi equals wise man. It's also the, the Greek root word that our English words magic and magistrate have been derived from. So we see it has a broad, it has a broad base. Magic, of course, we think about supernatural, abracadabra kind of stuff. Magistrate, we think about someone in authority, a ruler. Well, these men were both, and that's where this is coming from, magi. The term was used to describe these people, this group of men, who were astrologers, so that meant they, they looked at the stars and searched out for their meanings. They were also known in some circles as magicians, also as priests. They were known for being scientists. So these were sort of the who's who of the intellectual world that was all mixed together in those ancient times. And so these men were always connected with having great learning and wisdom, the ability to understand dreams and to read the stars. And for this reason, these men were most often employed by kings and rulers and emperors to act as their royal advisors. In fact, the Magi were often so wealthy and so powerful that they were often referred to as kings themselves. Hence, we three kings. Because these men, though not officially kings of a kingdom or an empire, they would often be considered kings because of their incredible wealth and power. So now the next question that we know a little bit about these magi. How did they know to look for the star of the king? Where did this knowledge come from that there should be some star that they should be watching for that they would then associate with a newborn king in the nation of Israel? Well, incredibly... These magi had God's word. Remember the term magi was a word used in ancient Babylon. Now we know that the Jews had long before been taken to Babylon in exile because of their idolatry against the Lord. We know, of course, about King Nebuchadnezzar being the chief instigator of that and and how the people were taken into captivity. Now among those captives was a Jew named Daniel. You may have heard of Daniel. Yes, the same Daniel who's most famous for escaping the lion's den unharmed. This may come as a little bit of a shock to you. It, it came as a surprise to me, not a shock. But Daniel is actually considered a magi. In fact, King Nebuchadnezzar, as the head of the entire Babylonian empire, referred to Daniel as his chief magi. Now, most biblical scholars believe that Daniel would have used this influential position as the head of all of the Magi at that time in King Nebuchadnezzar's realm, in his court. Daniel was was appointed to be the chief over all of them. That Daniel would have used that position to not only pass along the Jewish scriptures to the Babylonians, and we know that at some point Nebuchadnezzar had a conversion where God humbled him by making him like a brute beast, eating the grass and, and, and everything like that, until he finally humbled himself and acknowledged that God was over him. 
And God restored him to his right mind. And at that time, Nebuchadnezzar issued a decree that the entire empire should worship the God of Daniel. And so we see that there was ample opportunity for Daniel to use this position, to use the decree of Nebuchadnezzar to teach the Babylonian people, especially the other magi around him, about the scriptures and explain them to them. And so there was one particular ancient prophecy from the book of Numbers, chapter 24, verse 17, that would have intrigued them because they were always interested in the stars. And this prophecy reads, Numbers 24, 17, A star will rise out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. So here we see a a prophecy saying a star will rise out of Jacob, referring, of course, to the Jacob who became Israel. A scepter, referring to a king, will rise out of Israel. So here they see this prophecy about a star announcing a new king in Israel. Now this prophecy, coupled with Daniel's visions of the coming Messiah, would have undoubtedly left an indelible impression on the Magi as a whole. These stories would have been written down, they would have been studied, they would have been rehearsed and passed along. And so even some 500 years after Daniel has already died, 500 years later, Daniel's message remains. And somewhere out there in the the Persian realm are these magi still watching the stars, still looking for the one special star that would announce the newborn king. And so when they finally see it, however they they came to recognize that, yes, this is the star, however they came to identify it as the one, once they saw it glowing in the night sky above Israel, nothing and no one was going to stop them from finding and worshiping that newborn king. And this begs the question, why would pagan magi go to worship another nation's king? Why? They don't belong to Israel. They're not Jews. They're, they're Persians. They're pagans. They, they worship all kinds of other gods. Why would they have such a strong desire to go and worship another nation's king? Because remember, these magi are definitely not Jews. They are pagan Gentiles, likely from Persia or Arabia. So even in seeing the star and identifying it, why would they make such effort? Well, we don't know exactly why, but Matthew gives us some very important clues. Verses 9 to 11. After they had heard the king, referring to their hearing with King Herod, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Here we see the indication is that the Magi recognized that there was something supernatural about the star itself. This was not an ordinary star. It seems that there's some indication here that when they were visiting with King Herod and looking around Jerusalem, the the star seems to have disappeared for a brief time. Because we see that when they leave King Herod and then the star reappears, the Magi are overjoyed because they see the star again. It's back and they are pumped. They are thrilled. This means we are close. And then it says this very particular thing about the activity of the star itself. It says the star went ahead of them 
until it stopped over the place where the child was. Now, we can speculate. Astronomers have speculated. Many people have speculated. What kind of a star moves in the sky and then stops, like in a geographical location, to give you some idea that this is the place? No regular stars do this. No regular stars move. Like, yes, a comet will move through the sky, but then it's gone, right? In one span of time, stars don't just move and then stop. And yet somehow this is what happens. And Matthew describes this star is unique. The Magi recognize this star is leading them to something very special because the star itself is special, unique. They are not following an ordinary star, and so they are not seeking an ordinary king. They went on this journey believing this king was different. He was a king worthy of an epic journey, a king worthy of their most costly gifts. And yes, upon finding him, a king worthy of their worship. Now, I want you to remember something in the story. Where had they just come from? A king, King Herod. Where in the story do we see them worshiping King Herod? Where do we see them bowing before him? Nowhere. You won't find it. Because King Herod was just another king. They were used to dealing with ordinary kings. Men like King Herod. Tyrants. Maniacs. Men who are just all about themselves and their ego and their power. They were used to men like that. But that was not the kind of king they were seeking. Yes, they left an ordinary king to find an extraordinary king. And even in finding this king in the most unlikely of places, probably a humble little house. Remember, they're not in the barn anymore. It's some time has passed, some months have gone by. They find Mary and Joseph and the baby in a humble little home. And yet, having just left a palace and a real king with a real title, they find a baby in a little house. And what do they do? They worship on their faces before a baby. This is profound, my friends. Here we see something incredible. The epiphany is this. In these pagan Gentile magi worshiping at Jesus' feet, the message is clear that God had not sent his son to only be the king of the Jews, but the king of the world. This is a big deal. He was not just the savior of Israel, but of the earth. Jew and Gentile alike. The somebodies and the nobodies. Insiders and outsiders. Pious and pagan. Saint and sinner. Rich and poor. Jesus came for everyone. And now we, of course, we know all this and we take it all but for granted. But for the Jews living in that day, in that time, this was the most radical, ridiculous, and even reprehensible idea. After all, they were God's chosen people. They were the special children of the promise, the heirs of the covenant of Abraham. They were the apples of God's eye. And so literally, they had a term that blanketed everyone else on the earth, outside of them, as Gentiles. Everyone outside of Israel was Gentiles. doesn't matter what country you were from, you were a Gentile, therefore you were outside the covenant, therefore you were a nobody. God didn't care about you because they certainly didn't. That was their attitude towards the Messiah. He was coming for them. He was coming for Israel. 
Everyone else was deemed idolatrous pagans, fit as nothing more than straw in the fire of God's coming wrath and judgment upon all of Israel's enemies. And so this is why Matthew, now come back to the author of the book, this is why Matthew, remember, he was an interesting character. Because Matthew, we're first introduced to as a tax collector. So he's a Jew who's a turncoat, working for the Romans. He's got that stigma on him. He knows what it's like to be looked at out of the corner of your eye. People don't like tax collectors. He knows what that's like. And so Matthew, a Jew himself, wrote this gospel specifically to a Jewish audience. And so he wants to emphasize to his readers something very important right out of the gate. Not the story of shepherds, but the story of Gentile pagan magi coming to worship Jesus as their newborn king. Now, as you can imagine, this idea was not an easy one for the Jews to accept. Even the early church struggled mightily with the notion that Jesus had come to save Gentiles. The Jewish believers, they... they, sought to impose new rules on the Gentiles. You know, maybe circumcision, maybe some dietary laws. You know, we, we got to add something to what they have to do. They can't be equal to us. And so this is why the Apostle Paul has to address this over and over again. And here's just a sampling of some of them. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. He writes this. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. Members together of one body and sharers together in the promise of Jesus Christ. Friends, if you're a Jew in the first century hearing this, you are bothered. Gentiles equal together with us? Really? Yes, really, Paul says. And he stresses it over and over again. Romans 10 verse 12. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all. And richly blesses all who call on him. That is what the Magi were doing. Gentile outsiders, they didn't care. They recognized this newborn king was special. And they called on him. And they were richly blessed in return. Now believe it or not. Believe it or not. Just like the Jews. I think we as the church... We as good Christian church-going people, we sometimes struggle with this too. We sometimes forget that Jesus came to seek and to save the sinners outside the church's walls just as much as he came to save the sinners inside the church's walls. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But to God's eternal glory, he has made a way for all to enter his family. No matter what anyone else says or thinks, God has made a way. Just as he made a way for for all of the faithful Israelites who are looking for the long-awaited Messiah, he made a way for pagan magicians to come to him and to worship. Incredible, isn't it? God has made a way for everyone. There's a great story written by an author named Barbara Robinson, that she entitled The Best Christmas Pageant Ever. Some of you may have read it before, and it's the story of a church which is faced with the drudgery of putting on yet another Christmas pageant for yet another year. The woman in charge of the pageant, she breaks her leg, and no one wants to take over the job. So it finally falls to one particular woman who would rather do anything else, but finally, begrudgingly, she agrees. 
Well, then a family named the Herdmans found their way to Sunday school because they'd heard there was free food there. Now, much to the chagrin of all the other kids, the best thing about Sunday school was that there were no Herdmans there. And yet, there they came. The mother, Imogene, smoking cigars of all things, and the kids getting into fights with literally everyone. Then at the first rehearsal, no one wants to volunteer for the part of Mary, Joseph, the wise men, or the angel of the Lord. It was always the same people who needed to be coerced, arms twisted, into doing the jobs, and they were waiting for the usual ritual to be enacted. But before that could happen, the herdmans all jumped up, put their hands in the air, and volunteered for every single position. Imogen was to be Mary, Ralph, Joseph, Gladys, the angel of the Lord, and the other brothers, the wise men. Well, this was scandalous. Who had ever heard of a cigar-smoking Mary and an unwashed, stinky Joseph? The congregation was in an uproar. A meeting needed to be called. Everyone was waiting for the pageant to collapse into a fistfight. It was truly scandalous. And as the rehearsals unfolded, it was necessary to explain the story because the Herdmans didn't know it. How dare the innkeeper refuse them room to a pregnant woman? Didn't they know this was Jesus? Herod should be taken out, they said. The shiny veneer of the Christmas story dissolved, much to the offense of the congregation. Well, Christmas Eve arrived and the pageant unfolds. I'd like to read to you part of the ending. Following Mary and Joseph came Gladys from behind the angel choir, pushing people out of the way and stepping on everyone's feet. Since Gladys was the only one in the pageant who had anything to say, she made the most of it. Hey, unto you a child is born, she hollered, as if it was for sure the best news in the world. And the shepherds trembled, sore afraid, mainly of Gladys, but it looked good anyways. As for ruining the whole thing, well, it seemed that the herdmans had actually somehow improved the pageant just by doing what came naturally to them, like burping the baby, for instance, or thinking that a ham would make a much better present than a lot of perfumed oil. Usually by the time we got to singing Silent Night, which was always the last carol, I was fed up with the whole thing and couldn't wait for it to be over. But I didn't feel that way this time. I almost wished for the pageant to go on with the herdmans in charge to see what else would happen, what else would be different. Maybe the wise men would tell Mary about the problem with Herod, and she would tell them to go back and lie their heads off. Or Joseph might go with them and get rid of Herod once and for all. I was so busy planning new ways to save the baby Jesus that I almost missed the beginning of Silent Night. We sang all the verses too. And when we got to Son of God, Love's pure light. I just happened to look at Imogene, and I almost dropped my hymn book on a baby angel. Everyone had been waiting all this time for the herdmans to do something absolutely unexpected. And sure enough, it happened. Imogen Herdman was crying. In the candlelight, her face was all shiny with tears. She didn't even bother to wipe them away. She wept unashamedly. She just sat there. Old Imogen, in her crooked veil, crying and crying and crying as she looked at the baby Jesus, holding her, holding him in her arms. Well, we started to cry too. And it was the best Christmas pageant we ever had. And this was the funny thing about it all. For years, I'd thought about the wonder of Christmas and the mystery of Jesus' birth and never really understood it. But now, because of the herdmans, it didn't seem so mysterious after all. As far as I'm concerned, Mary is always going to look a lot like Imogen Herdman, sort of nervous and bewildered. 
burping that baby and ready to clobber anyone who would dare lay a hand on him. And the wise men are always going to be like Leroy and his brothers, bearing ham. Well, this, my friends, is epiphany. Just as the herdmans didn't fit the part, the Magi don't fit the part. They don't fit the part of squeaky clean churchgoers, good Jewish boys coming to worship. No, they anything but fit the picture of Christmas. And you know what? We as sinners don't really fit the part either. We don't fit the part of God's family very well. We, like the Magi, are outsiders. We don't belong. We, like Elroy T. Higginbottom from Indianapolis, well, we're complete nobodies. And yet, incredibly, the King of Kings knows our name. Think about that. The King of Glory. I don't care, President, Prime Minister, nothing pales in comparison to that. The King of Kings knows my name. And most importantly, through Jesus, my name is written in his book. That's the most important book in the existence of the universe, my friends. It's the Lamb's Book of Life. Everyone who puts faith in Jesus Christ, their name is written in that book. Is your name written in that book? Because if it does, that means we go from outsider to insider. We go from nobodies to somebodies. We go from those who just don't fit the picture to fitting right in. Because God the Father himself says through Jesus, I am welcoming everyone in who will enter in through faith in my Son. That is the incredible message of the Magi. Gentiles are included, my friends. And that means us. No preconditions. No needing to clean ourselves up first. We just show up. We believe. And God says we are right with him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And I pray that as you and I and we together as a church family, as we enter this new year, I pray that this greatest of all epiphanies is yours, is ours, and it can be shared with others. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we worship at your feet, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, I pray that we, in sincere faith, would offer to you our most precious gift. For, Lord, that is what we saw the Magi do. They, they came bearing precious gifts. They laid down their gold, their frankincense, their myrrh, and yet over and above those gifts, the most precious of all, Lord, they gave themselves. They worshipped you in faith. And, Lord, that is what you're looking for. You're not looking for us to heap on you gold or, or anything else. You're looking for us to give you ourselves, our hearts, in true faith, in true worship. And that in giving ourselves to you, we will, we will be found in you. And our names will be written in your book in heaven. And that for that reason, Lord, we are sanctified. We are called children of the Most High God. And we are no longer outsiders but we are insiders of your grace. Thank you for this incredible gift, Lord. I pray that today this reality would burn more brightly in our hearts as we leave, and that, Lord, we would be so ready to share this reality with the world around us. 
In your name we pray, for your glory. Amen.